You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. This is uh, January 28, 2021. I'm Peter Betke. I'm the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And today we have the great privilege of having a book panel on my colleague Richard Wagner's new book, Macro Systems as Systems Theory, uh, which is a uh, fantastic book. Uh, Dick is a uh, a distinguished professor in our Department of Economics. And uh, let me say something a little bit about this book before I introduce the, the other panelists. So in 2008 and 2009, when we had the global financial crisis, uh, The Economist magazine covered a conference that George Mason University had on a new way of doing economic policy governed by complexity science. It was a conference that was set up by Rob Axtell, our colleague, and Dick Wagner was one of the people involved in that, and The Economist came and reported on it as an approach that we would challenge the DSGE model and there would be this new alternative way to do macroeconomics. That was a long time ago. Um, and it's, a, it's been at least 11 years since that economist report came out. And I follow this stuff pretty closely and I'm pretty sure that what has traditionally happened is that the macro models guided by complexity science try to conform to what the DSGE models did. So as a result, the research program stalled. But it didn't happen to my colleague Richard Wagner. This book is actually the research program that follows from taking essential complexity seriously. And that notion of taking essential complexity seriously, I would argue was of course one of the main themes of Hayek's Nobel Prize address in 1974. And, uh, and Dick is picking up on that ball and, and taking it in new ways. Um, and I would just like to say about the book, because today's not my day to comment on the book, but I do want to share this. I actually think this book is, is a brilliant book. It's an original book. It's a creative book. But one of the things that's most important about it is that it's a pregnant with possibilities book. Uh, Dick Wagner does not end this book with a declarative statement. He ends it with questions that other scientists can pick up and develop. And as a result, he's actually leaving a research program for young scholars to challenge the way in which economics is currently being practiced. He didn't do what I hoped he was going to do, which the original title of his macro book was In the Shadow of Keynes. And I hoped he was going to end up by you know, finally putting the dagger into Keynes. And instead, what Dick has done is give me good counsel that I should be, you know, I understand the problems with what Keynes did, but I also have to understand the possibilities that Keynes was getting us to think about through Shackle and others, to think about the way in which we think about order and turbulence 
and how we don't see those as juxtaposed against each other, but the turbulence within the order of the macroeconomy and how we go about doing that. So that's enough from me. Now we're going to hear from actually three really talented young scholars who are working in these areas. And so the first one is Abigail Devereaux. Professor Devereaux is at Wichita State University, um, where she is an assistant professor at the Frank Burton Business School. Um, she's also the uh, uh, Israel Kirzner Award winner for best dissertation uh, at GMU. And uh, so Abby will be the first of our, of our commentators. Then we have Erwin Decker, who is a professor at Erasmus School of uh, uh, Erasmus University um, in Rotterdam. Uh, he has written the uh, most uh, definitive in many ways, capturing of the culture of the Viennese economists and uh, in his book, uh, The Viennese Students of Civilization. It's published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. And then Erwin has now been recently finishing up a biography on the Dutch economist, uh, uh, John Tyrell, um, excuse me, uh, Tinbergen. I'm sorry about that, uh, Jan Tinbergen. Um, and you know, and again, relating it to Keynes, remember that uh, you know, uh, Tinbergen had sent Keynes the large macro model and uh, Keynes uh, responded back and said, some people want to get on with the task of doing it and other people question whether or not the task is worth doing. And Keynes suggested he was the one that was asking the questions. I think one of the things that we're finding out in Irwin's uh, detailed examination of Tinbergen is that Tinbergen himself was someone who also worried a lot about the tasks that were engaged in rather than just being an, a pure engineer of, of economic policy. Uh, and then finally, we have Will Luther, who is one of the world's leading experts on Bitcoin. Uh, I, I don't know if he's been buying low and selling high, and I have no idea if he's involved uh, with GameStop, but, uh, but uh, uh, Will is a professor at uh, Florida, Florida Atlantic University, is that right? Uh, in Boca Raton, which has to be one of the most nice locations in the world to be a professor at. Um, and Will is a uh, macroeconomist and has written a lot of papers, published papers in money and monetary theory and macro policy. And so these three uh, scholars are important uh, contributors to the ongoing development of modern macroeconomics. And so they'll be perfect commentators to work with Dick's um, book. The game rules for this are straightforward. Professor Wagner will have some 20 minutes to talk about his book. Then we will turn to Abby, Irwin, and then Will, and then we'll have a conversation between the panel. So for right now, I'd like to turn it over to Professor Wagner and to Abby and Irwin and Will, don't wait for me to say it's time for you to talk when Dick Wagner's done then just you go, Abby, then when you're done, Erwin, you go, and then when Erwin's done, Will, you jump in. So thank you all for coming, and thanks to our Mercatus staff, Molly and Stephanie and, and Malia, for putting this together, and thanks especially to Professor Wagner for writing such an amazing book. So, Dick, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you very much, Pete, for those kind words, and since we're going to go person by person, you'll know when I'm done, when this uh, 
clock goes off. I've set it for 20 minutes and it is now running and I have it on high. So presumably Abby will hear when this is done and she can just start talking. This book is really a meditation on the old theme that ideas have consequences. That ideas are not neutral things. They're not like microscopes that help us see details more clearly on what they're focused. Uh, uh, they don't just magnify, but they can also allow us to see things that aren't there. Uh, or to look in the wrong places for things because our theories channel our attention for good and for bad. And the claim I advance in this book is that orthodox macro theories since the 1930s channel our attention in places uh, where there's no genuine value to create by looking there that the inception of this really goes back to a 1997 lecture on complexity I gave at St. Vincent's College. And I was on something that was titled Complexity, Governance, and Public Policy. It was there when I came across a book of essays by Eric Lindahl that contained an essay written in 1919. And everyone, of course, says that the macro-micro distinction came from Keynes, but Lindahl, 20 years earlier, had a very straightforward distinction between micro and macro in economics, where he referred to microeconomics as a realm of individual action. And macroeconomics referred to interaction amongst actors. Now, the trouble with that was Lindahl at that time didn't have the tools available to take the next step in that. And so what ended up happening was that macro simply became aggregation. And so you can add up what each individual does independently and you get the entirety. Now, as we know subsequently to that, that uh, just like, you know, that old sort of nursery rhyme story of poor old Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall, but no one could put him back together. Well, that's what aggregation pretends to do, is to take the pieces and make a coherent picture of the entirety. And what I said about doing something in this book that had been bothering me for a good 20 or so years about the question of how if you took that initial intuition of micro referring to action and macro referring to interaction, how could you theorize in a different way about the entirety? Because it is the entirety that we especially want to understand more fully. And so that's what I do in this book or, or try to I don't do it. I, I make a start at it. It's very much a work in process. It uh, is well, with the recognition that we are each involved in systems of interaction, not of our choosing, not of our making, but in which we live for better or for worse. 
and that uh, it's this kind of system quality in the relation between the parts and the entirety of the system that is the appropriate object of a macroeconomic theory. And so besides the introduction to the book that I've just kind of reviewed, there are nine more chapters to the book and I'll use my remaining 15 minutes and 22 seconds to uh, say a few brief words about what each of those uh, chapters entails and then turn it over to the three of, of you after that. The next one uh, then gets into, okay, what do we mean by systems? How do we construe social systems? Because there's all kinds of mechanical systems that uh, work as the various parts are engineered to perform unless in some way there's a failure in one of those parts. But when we're talking about social systems, we're not talking about mechanical systems, we're talking about human population systems uh, populated by people who can exercise creativity, exercise imagination. And so in the process are able continually to inject various ways and various degrees of novelty into society. And I, since that St. Vincent College lecture, have been using the distinction between a parade and a crowd of pedestrians leaving a theater or an arena as an illustration of the different kinds of macro configurations. A parade is a macro configuration, has a large number of agents, and everything there goes exactly as the parade marshal planned, less exogenous events hit the parade, such as a Flautus, uh, shoelace coming and tied, falling down, tripping some people, and the parade stops for a couple minutes while people pick themselves back up and go on again. Uh, but And that fits the standard macro theory model of an equilibrium system disturbed from time to time by exogenous events. But in the pedestrian crowd, there is no such thing as an exogenous event. Everything happens is generated internally by the participants and by interaction among the participants. But at the same time, the, the crowd of pedestrians is also an orderly configuration in the sense that each person who exists inside of that crowd can understand how to work from where that person is to where that person wants to go. Now, it won't have perhaps the same exact timing features of the parade in the sense of the parade mark. Uh, someone watching the parade can look at the order of march from the marshal established, look at your watch, and know exactly what outfit is passing the reviewing stand at that time by virtue of what the parade marshal established at the very beginning. These things are all entirely scripted, except for exogenous events. Now, you don't have that scripted quality when you talk about crowds of people leaving events and so forth, but it is all the same orderly in the sense that participants inside know how to work their way through it. And so then I go from there, next chapter three, 
there's this question again. This is a meditation on ideas have consequences. And so how do we conceptualize an idea of, of an economic system? The usual conceptualization is this circular flow model, which is a kind of an aggregate accounting kind of construction of a society. But yet if the fundamental uh, feature of all economic activity is planning, where every act involves a passing of time because you decide today to do something, the consequences of which will manifest and so come some later time. And in that interval between the time of deciding to do something and the time when consequences begin to manifest, there are other uh, people, other plans that also come in into play and which can in various ways for better and for worse influence the uh, performance expected performance properties of some initial plans and so it's for that reason that i sketch out the idea of a, a structured production as being superior with respect to complexity lines of thinking than a circular flow uh, conceptualization which leads then into the next chapter four in terms of distinction between synchronic action and diachronic action, which is a particular theme of George Shackles, and where in synchronic action conceptualizes the economy like a bunch of synchronized swimmers, and where the objective is to each of the swimmers to perfectly synchronize his or her motion in the water with all of the other swimmers. That would be a perfect, evenly equilibrated uh, swimming team, where in the diachronic action, there is that, again, the diachronic action mirrors the, uh, the crowd of pedestrians leaving an event. And uh, that in turn, from that distinction between diachronic and synchronic action, the next chapter, chapter five, moves into, again, a Shackelian kind of concept of the idea of kaleidic action doesn't mean totally random action by any sense, but it means, again, no pre-coordination of economic activities, no auctioneer who in the old-fashioned ball raising sense until the auctioneer said go no one went and so that way you didn't get this problem what was referred to as false trading but uh, with uh, kaleidic action what i want to do there and the idea i want to carry across there is again that there is no such thing i would say almost no such thing as a random shock to a society now to any one individual the entire world is almost just a parade of random shocks and that other people are coming in and doing things. Uh, but to a society, there can't be any random shocks, except maybe for such a thing as a meteor strike and, and, and things like that. But outside of that, I think the challenge is to recognize that uh, human societies, uh, populations, are really more in the order of living, oh, not brain-directed processes, organisms, that 
among the qualities are the hosting of thoughts, imaginations, creativity. And that is going to give a quality to societies of change. It's going to mean people are having their plans sometimes fulfilled more fully than could have imagined, but sometimes also terribly disrupted. And that's all what it means to live inside of at least an, an open, free kind of society. And then the next chapter, the sixth chapter in, in this book, uh, then takes off on some things, some themes I've developed elsewhere before that in a book called Politics as a Peculiar Business with the idea that typical macro theoretic idea brings in a deus ex machina, uh, a god from the machine in the sense that you, you have this economy, if things go bad, you have to have someone to whom you can turn to fix it up. That takes the form of a state, of a polity. What I sketch out here to say is building upon other work is there is no such deus ex machina. All there is is us. And we come in different kinds of organizational packages. We see things in various different ways. And what comes out of this society is a product of the interaction amongst the various participants in which there is no such thing as a privileged place like Mount Olympus, you're above it all, and you can just see better and move people around as the gods of old would have you do it. And so then going from there, and the cumulative in the next chapter, which is chapter seven, is it elaborates further that entangled idea by the, uh, by the recognition that Economic calculation is something that is ubiquitous throughout society. It's not that you need market prices to uh, calculate, um, make judgments, uh, and rather that every every choice has to entail a calculation uh, because every choice is going to entail a choice among or between options. And so every chooser is going to choose the more preferred over the less preferred option simply because it makes no sense to say that people will deliberately choose what they dislike. And so um, I specify that out, uh, which means in turn suggests that in many ways politics and political language gets involved in a kind of a shell game in which you are doing things that you don't you're saying you're doing what you're not doing, disguising what you're not doing, the same way that a shell game operates. A shell game operates through people trying to get the players of the game to look where the P is not under one of those three shells. And that's how that ability of the hand to go fast in the eye is what makes a shell game profitable to the players of those games. And I think it's the same thing with respect to uh, politics, which is why I think politics, the, dis the language of politics is fundamentally a language of heuristic discourse and not openly honest discourse. Um, and and I, chapter eight then uh, is concerned with money and credit and what I describe as a commanding height. Uh, 
Uh, I've spent a fair amount of time over the years in Italy, and there are in Italy uh, various kinds of piazzas and places named after this Italian communist Antonio Gramsci. And uh, he uh, counseled the necessity of a long march through the institutions, as he uh, used that term, uh, rather than a kind of a Leninist-like sudden creation of a communist system. Gramsci, I think, had more of the notion that you had to engage in a long turned down process of undermining uh, various kinds of of long-standing institutions and conventions uh, in a way similar to what Erwin Decker was uh, referring to in his book on the Austrian students of the civilization and what those uh, students of civilization were contending with I think is uh, something similar to what is still in contention in terms of um, the basic kinds of uh, systems of Western liberalism as a way in which people can live together uh, peacefully and productively. And then from that uh, chapter, I go into chapter nine, where that chapter recurs again to two of my other favorite Italians, actually. Antonio Gramsci is not any means a favorite Italian of mine, but, but uh, Pareto and Mosca are. And perusing um, their works and some of their thoughts get you to this question of the relative significance of reason and rationality in political action versus will, willfulness, and sentiment. And um, whether political action, wh whether logic has an independent ability to change the direction of political discourse, uh, or does the direction of political discourse change because people want to see a change in direction. I think that may be a subtle distinction, but uh, it's a kind of a question that came up necessarily, I think, in addressing the kinds of questions I address at that point. And then I come to chapter 10, the closing chapter with 57 seconds left in the clock on democratic discussion and uh, consensus. And I have a section there because Pete asked about Keynes and he, he, he wanted to bury Keynes or whatever it was, I think he said. But uh, I, I titled that closing chapter, section of that chapter, um, concluding notes on the social philosophy or regarding the social philosophy towards which this book points as a, uh, carry forward from the uh, final chapter in Keynes' book on what he titled Concluding Notes on the Social Philosophy Towards Which the General Theory uh, Leads. And so there in, in uh, closing, just in my, my 20 minutes, I try to uh, review and, and lay out 
the basic idea of if you go back to um, and, and listen, we're, we're beyond the Christmas season now, but in Handel's Messiah, uh, there's a refrain where the chorus uh, uh, sings, lift your voices, be not afraid, or something like that. And there, you know, I try to bring that in with the theme that what basic idea of liberalism as a social philosophy, as a way of people living together, counsel, be not afraid. But sure, uh, a liberal society is going to be creative, is, is going to be um, change, is going to be internal, but uh, uh, there's also widespread ability, imagination to get us all through that. And the problem, I think, with so much modern democratic politics and the search continually for power and manipulation to gain and to keep hold of power, one of the things that uh, helps in that, I think, is often the fomenting of a, of a sense of fearfulness, of, in which fearfulness, then, like you get these politicians, you get these politicians to say, I want to bring people together. And how do you do that? Well, a uh, basic liberal society, I think, has precisely those kinds of qualities to bring people together in a way that uh, 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 political processes never can. And so they're undone. Sorry for two minutes too late, Abby. Okay. Thanks so much, Dick. This is a wonderful book, uh, and um, your comments make me want to read it again. So um, I, but I hope that I can also clarify. I'm starting my 15 minutes with my own alarm, so hopefully I won't go over. Uh, so, an in introduction to my remarks. Um, I just want to note that uh, Dick Wagner and myself are theorists in. Uh, where theor theoretical analyses constitute an historically small fraction of the articles published at top economic journals. So Daniel Hammermesh published something recently, a time series from 1963 to now of categorizing top journal publications. And uh, pure, theory pure theory papers are now at an all-time low fraction. Uh, they're under 20% of all uh, publications in top journals. Empirical papers are at an all-time high, however, at 64%. Um, it's not to say anything about empirical papers, but more to show you sort of how the um, how publication has changed, and I think how the feeling towards doing theory in economics has has changed, not for for the better. But this uh, my series of remarks and reading. Uh, Dick's book should give the young theorist hope. Um, so Dick has said to me more than once that it takes a theory to be a theory. His book is a call to action, a signpost with an arrow pointing in the direction of systems theory. You look to where the signpost points, and Dick has laid several of the first paving stones of this theory. So I'd like to address just eight of these paving stones, in particular, what might be categorically next. So first, I'm just going to list these paving stones in a little, uh, a bit of a treat for you. Um, and then I will go into a little bit more detail in each one. So the first paving stone is that relationships are essential. 
we are located not just in space with relationship to each other, but also in terms of our membership in different secular or religious groups, in terms of how much influence we have within those groups or among our professional peers, even, even in, in our extended families. Uh, uh, Dick has done a wonderful job of explaining in this book how standard mainstream approaches to econ theory do not take relationships into account, certainly not nearly as much as they should. And I'll, I'll discuss this a little bit more a bit. The second paving stone is action, including policy implementation, happens at the micro and meso layers, the intermediate layers, not and never at the macro layer. So this is a very important paving stone. Why? Because micro-founded macroeconomics and Keynesian macroeconomics um, treat spontaneously generated system patterns as if they were either entirely reducible to micro-level interactions, so not spontaneous, right, or entirely disembodied from micro-action, so not ordered. And this is to hint at what can we not explain with these theories, spontaneous order. Right. Um, so the third paving stone is that the use of knowledge matters at the process level. And this goes into Dick's parades versus Piazza's comment and model that I also utilize in my classes now when talking about economic complexity to my students. Um, and so I'll go into that in a bit. The fourth paving stone is price theory requires a theory of price formation as a direct implication of Hayek's epistemological theories. There is a great deal of price theory out there and price theorists who work in this mode who take prices as given. Prices are what we have to explain. Price formation is what we have to explain. Taking prices as given is not a price theory. The fifth paving stone is that Pareto optimal states, Pareto improvements, and refinements like Caldor Hicks are artifacts of neoclassical modeling environment. Uh, so the existence of apparent Pareto improvements aren't the end of the story or the coda to which is design a policy to realize said Pareto improvements now. The existence of apparent Pareto improvements is the beginning of the story. It is a signpost to the uh, theorists that there is more to be explained here, right? Um, the sixth paving stone is that computation is costly. Boy, I just cannot hit upon this one enough. And Dick also hits upon this many times, I think at least once in each of his chapters, because it's so important and it's so overlooked. Uh, and re remember also that computation is not the same. Oh, the cost of computation, we do not mean that it's not equivalent to transaction costs. Because even in costing transaction costs, we need to do computation, right? So there's a recursion there uh, that makes uh, computation itself uh, a different activity uh, than uh, uh, taking into account transaction costs. The seventh paving stone is that coordination and conflict characterize social systems. Similarly, arbitrage and disruption characterize economic systems, particularly should characterize macroeconomic theories, particularly ones that talk about growth. So if you only have arbitrage trending to some kind of equilibrium, you've 
only been able to explain half of the story. The other half is disruption, and there is no satisfactory theory of disruption. Uh, because in the equilibrium theory, there cannot be an endogenous disruption, right? There have to be exogenous. Um, the uh, the uh, um, flute player tripping on her 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 loose shoelaces. So there has to be some other uh, disruption going on. Um, the eighth paving stone here is that economic theorists are scientists, not mechanics. So economic theory is still nascent. We're in our natural philosophy stage. We haven't yet graduated to physics. <laughs> but this isn't to say that we will become engineers. Physicists, for instance, understand that a Dyson sphere is hypothetically possible. But they don't run out and try to create the construction of a Dyson sphere is a much different matter than understanding it as a hypothetical and in hypothetical terms. Um, so I am going along here and I've spoken for about half my time. So I just want to dip in and out of some of these paving stones. Um, and uh, I think uh, uh, the most important and why I put it first is that uh, relationships are essential. Uh, so and uh, since it takes a theory to be the theory, I also want to talk about tools. So ways in which we can formalize or visualize or talk about relationships in sort of more formalistic terms. Network theory uh, is a way of, uh, of describing uh, relationships in uh, uh, using a formalism. Uh, so uh, this is something that the computational sociologists have pitched their star to quite a long time ago, uh, and they're using network theory uh, in uh, their analyses. You know, it's, it's, it's now kind of a mature theory, and I urge young economists who want to theorize about relationships to uh, understand network and graph theory. Uh, so... Um, Standard macroeconomics, standard economic theory does not take relationships uh, sufficiently into account. One need only read the theory of value uh, or Maskell's standard intro text textbook to see sort of the formal lack of these specific relationships. So micro theory aggregated into macro theory is at bottom a field theory. Uh, where all particles in the system, and these would be people, consumers, have equal probability of interacting with all other particles. But this is not how social systems are arranged. Uh, we are arranged relative to, say, for instance, how much political power we have, the kind of influence we're able to coercively exert upon others, and also not coercively exert. Um, I certainly am influential in my own marriage, for instance, and there's no coercion there. Uh, and uh, if anything, this coercion and political influence embeds us even deeper in the system rather than setting us apart, us at being econ theorists, from the system in terms of influence upon it. So as we theorize in ways that then are taken uh, and, and, and uh, taken and, and turned into some sort of policy to then act upon the system, we have to understand that the fact that we are acting um, adjacent to coercive political power embeds us even deeper into the system. It does not take us out of it. And so we must be able to theorize in terms of how our, act our, our theory adjacent to political action um, ramifies through the system. 
Uh, and so this uh, means that we need to take political relationships in particular into account. We do not assume those away. They are perhaps the most important not to assume away. Um, so uh, ignoring connections most generally uh, by aggregating outcomes destroys information. Um, and uh, particularly about, for instance, how per perverse orders may have arisen uh, and how to uh, effectively ameliorate them. Um, so, uh, and worse still, is treating the existence of connections as the perversions. This happens in conversations about externalities, positive and negative externalities. Uh, so uh, the topology-less, the connection-less system is seen as the optimal system. Uh, and a, a system with connections that, say, results in action that we can see as ramifying um, uh, across others, uh, the outcomes of others, is seen as a perversion. You're either uh, undersupplying a beneficial good or you're oversupplying um, a, a, a detrimental good. There's never any just right in terms of, as Goldilocks would say, the just right is is a theory that is connectionless, um, a, a theory that uh, is, uh, does not actually describe reality. Right, so um, I have a little bit of time left. I want to talk a bit more about these other paving stones. So I want to talk a little bit more about um, spontaneous uh, action and spontaneous orders. So I, I, I noted in my second paving stone that uh, action occurs at the meso and micro levels, never at the macro layer. Uh, and uh, our micro-founded macro and, and Keynesian level disembodied macro um, do not, cannot explain spontaneous orders. Um, so I think the, the direction theorists must go is to seek out theories and frameworks that are capable of exhibiting organized complexity. We've known for a long time that this is a direction we need to go to, not just economists, but science, science, scientists in general. In 1947, Warren Weaver advised scientists that the advancement of their discipline, of all science, required understanding and explaining organized complexity. We're in luck, right? The computing age has made this venture relatively easy, certainly more easy than in uh, Weaver's or, or Hayek's time when he was also talking about uh, tacit knowledge and distributed knowledge. We have entire fields and dozens of scholarly institutes dedicated to understanding complex systems. We have algorithmic frameworks, uh, agent-based modeling. We have mathematical subfields like graph theory. Theoretical physicists are working on these issues like Stephen Wolfram and his theory of everything is working using simple systems, computable systems. Join in! As econ theorists, you can join in. You can uh, utilize these tools, these concepts. You can um, utilize them to, to explain organized complexity in your field. Social science is the most complex of all subjects. People and their systems are complex. So a theorist of the 2020s must be necessarily complexity aware. All right. Um, so I want to go into, I think, a bit more now um, that coordination and conflict characterize social systems. Uh, so this is a seventh paving stone. Optimization functions, particularly with unique fixed points, typically have one or very few parameters that are that vary linearly until the system attains stasis, stationarity. But this isn't the case in dualistic systems, right? Arbitrage more successfully, uh, and you invite disruption by virtue of it becoming more costly to arbitrage. Disruption then destroys the niches that were once 
exploitable profit opportunities. And so then you have to re-arbitrage and then that invites more disruption and your system is continually changing in this dualistic way. Um, so at the very least, one needs to look askance at systems that tend towards stationarity as they are unlikely to describe uh, one of the necessary halves of social behavior. Uh, you should also look askance at systems where solutions are either stable, this is fully arbitraged, or chaotic, fully disrupted, or cycle through these simple cases. We're looking for organized complexity here. Organized complexity is not categorically not either fully stationary or chaotic. Neither can you emulate organized complexity through a combination of fully stable and chaotic solution states. You cannot emulate it. You need to have a system that is capable of describing organized complexity. There are simple systems that can do this quite well. Very simple Turing machines and cellular automata. Extremely simple systems um, that take mere bytes of information to describe um, can are capable of exhibiting uh, organized complexity and endogenous randomness, endogenous disruptions. Uh, and so we have these tools here that are available to us uh, and we need to utilize them more effectively. And that, that's the end of my time. And I'm kind of glad that I ended on that note. Thanks, Dick, so much for a wonderful book. Um, yes, thank you very much indeed. Um, Abby, also for um, doing the more technical stuff. I want to delve into a few more um, perhaps uh, old school political economy questions in, in, in my remarks. But first of all, I want to congratulate uh, Dick Wagner with this book, an amazing achievement. It opens up uh, many, many avenues and new ways to look at the economy. In some sense, I'm, I'm still coming to realize how badly wrong we went in the 1930s uh, and um, when modern macro was developed. And this opening up is, I think, also the real value of the book. It um, does often not propose a very specific alternative yet, but it makes us aware of the hidden presuppositions in modern macro. And for that reason, I think, at least that was my experience reading the book, it also circles around modern macro in a sort of beautiful way, all the time pulling out another thread to expose what was hidden from view and sort of trying to bring that back into view. It also means that I'm convinced that this will be a book to go back to, to, to find new, new avenues and new inspiration. I must admit that this has been my experience more fre frequently upon encountering uh, the work of, of Dick Wagner. Um, it took me quite a while, for example, to understand what precisely he meant with this idea of entangled political economy. Um, this puzzlement sort of grew um, when I learned that an entangled political economist, he urged, cannot use the word embedded. I had already understood that uh, Wagner was fascinated with theorists who managed to link the economic and the political, uh, some of whom he noted here, Pareto and Mosca in particular, to link the economic and the political and sometimes also the social world. But I learned over time that entangled is, is in fact a kind of specific claim about the link between the economic and the political. So let us restrict ourselves to these two now and, and leave society out, out for the moment. I understand that that's a bit of a simplification, but I think it helps me make my point. So in an entangled political economy, the economic and the political sphere are part of the same open social system. This in contrast to what is wonderfully insightful, uh, insightfully in the book called Additive Political Economy, where the economic sphere and the political sphere sort of exist independently from one another, 
and the political typically intervening into the economic system. The idea of embeddedness, or at least uh, that's my understanding of it, entails a sort of third type of relationship where one system is embedded in the other system and the embedding system, so it is sort of the, the one that encapsulates it, is superior or has primacy. In the perspective of entangled political economy, we cannot claim that one system is a priori superior, has primacy, or embeds the other. I think that at the very least, it should be seen as a historically contingent claim, but that I will come back to in a moment. First, I want to talk about another concept that, um, that Wagner attempts to ban from our vocabulary in this book, and that is the notion of intervention. Perhaps one of the, the key terms in a lot of talk about policy and the relation between the state and the economy. Wagner argues that since the economic and the political world, or rather private entities and public entities, because we shouldn't reduce, of course, the spheres to uh, one kind of actor, interact all the time. And so in society, we cannot speak of one sphere intervening on the other. A key argument in the book that undoubtedly the other panelists will say um, other things about is that additive political economy leads to a wrong conceptualization of the economy and what both public and private entities can do. Modern macro is not only mistaken in its view that public entities or politics can intervene in the economy, but it also has a complete blind spot for the fact that private entities, so uh, you could say the economy, can engage in all sorts of mutually beneficial contracts with politicians or politics or public entities, what in everyday parlance sometimes is called buying political influence or corruption, if you like. But when public entities should be theorized as being within the broader social system, then certainly this should also be true for economists, um, as Abigail also uh, highlighted, right? They are part of the system themselves as well. So we as theorists do not stand outside, but are inside the system. Throughout the book, I kept wondering why many of the insights that Wagner, I think, self-consciously presents in the form of basic insights and plain truths, um, at least if you can keep up with all the different sports and games that he draws the analogies from, are not more widely recognized, or perhaps why they are ignored or sort of paths not taken. And I think there's a reason for that um, that the book isn't very explicit about, and that I would like to hear a bit more about it, uh, if possible, in the Q&A. Throughout the book, there's a curious mixture between critique of existing macroeconomic theories and normative critique of the way that current policy is undertaken. That mixture is not too surprising. If we understand the economy badly, after all, it's unlikely that we will make good policies. But the mixture also points to something else, namely the way that economists and their theories are entangled with the institutions, um, which give rise to these policies, right? Much of the book is written as if economics went wrong for internal intellectual reasons. And hence, Wagner claims that we should reclaim and reconnect to the main line of economic thought he situates um, sort of coming out of the 19th century. But the period which, period which he identifies as giving rise to modern additive political economy is precisely the period that the state's role in the economy accelerates at an unprecedented rate in the 1930s and 1940s, which should at least make us pause and reflect a bit. But I think that from an entangled political economy perspective, we also have something analytical to say about this. Uh, period and this interrelationship. The joint rise of additive political economy, modern macro, if you like, and the state managing the economy, 
not because we should claim that economic thought intervenes upon the political world, the simple idea that ideas, ideas have consequences, not even Keynes was that powerful, or to suggest that the political world simply bought uh, the academic world in some sense, not even frankly, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt was that powerful, but rather because the two worlds are entang entangled and academics and public entities found new ways of creating mutually, uh, mutually beneficial exchanges, right? Um, which led to the development of theories and models which just, justified positions of expertise within government for economists and a much more active role of the government in the economy. These new exchanges between the ivory tower and the halls of power gave rise to an entanglement that has influenced our way of speaking, thinking, and conceptualizing the economy. It established a permanent funding for economics as part of the sciences and a permanent place for economists close to those in power. In return, of course, the economists had to deliver something. And I think in, in, in large part, you can look at that period as justifying a set of political acts and concepts that justified an active role of the government in the economy. As Wagner explained, the sort of deus ex machina role that um, is um, characteristic of these models. So my first question to Professor Wagner is, um, what the proper way is to look at economists and economic theories from, from his perspective of, of macroeconomics and, and how we should think about this um, sort of being inside the system and also in some sense the, the ideas being shaped by the institutions in which they come about. And so also whether some of the shape of modern macro should not be attributed merely to intellectual error, but also to institutional circumstances in which macroeconomists found themselves or navigated themselves in the 20th century. The second question is a more historical question and pertains to the way that we should think about this relationship over time. So the 19th century economists, from Ricardo to Marx and to Bobbywerk, all thought that the economy was primary that economic forces were simply beyond the control of politics. This started to change in the late 19th century when different relationships between the economy and uh, the political world were developed, including, for example, the idea that they formed an organic relationship, that there was a kind of organic relationship between state, economy, and society. You know the thinkers of this period better than I do, um, and somewhat later, the perspective that uh, Wagner describes as additive political economy was also developed in the 1930s and 40s. As I see it, the work of the order liberals and also of James Buchanan sought to constitutionally restrain the role of the state in the economy, at the same time recognizing, or at least reasoning from a perspective in which the political was, had some kind of primacy, um, was ultimately in control. And indeed, there are some exchanges between private and public ent entities that even in the modern day world are not allowed, both legally and morally. And yet it is undeniable that government and business are seriously entangled. Some have called this cronyism. Others, such as Randall Hol Holcomb, have proposed to view it as a distinct political econ economic system, something he calls political capitalism. It seems to me that an entangled political economy provides an excellent theoretical lens through which to analyze the contemporary relationship between the economy and politics. But I wonder whether this is not partly at least a sign of the times, whether perhaps historically the relationship between politics and the economy has not also been different. Not additive. I agree that that perspective is flawed and doesn't cannot capture any sort of historical period correctly. But I do wonder um, how historical are macroeconomics 
or our system theory should be. Um, and so um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. For now, thanks very much for this wonderful book um, and for, for providing us with so much inspiration to think differently about macro. It's a, a pleasure to join you all today to discuss Professor Wagner's new book. Uh, having, um, having taken some courses with Wagner in grad school and attended seminars and workshops with him in the time since, I've, I've learned that I often come to appreciate his thoughts long after first encountering them. So um, I'll, I'll leave that to you to judge whether that reflects the depth of my thinking or the, or excuse me, the depth of his thinking or uh, the shallowness of mine. Um, but in any event, you should consider my thoughts provisional at this point. Uh, I, I find myself in a strange position. So on the one hand, I, I couldn't help but nod along while reading Wagner's book. I fully embrace Lindell's distinction between microeconomics as individual action and macroeconomics as interaction. I, I think it's important that we focus on the plans of individuals that we, we recognize those plans are often frustrated by chance or circumstance, and that we appreciate how plans are revised in response to such frustrations in the normal course of things. And I'm, I'm similarly put off by the all too common suggestion that we can, can fix this or that outcome with crude policies like prohibitions on behaviors we find repugnant or government spending programs aimed at reducing the so-called output gap, where, where more often than not, we refers to the modeler and not actually the individuals involved in the political process. Indeed, much, much of my own work has, has tried to highlight these issues. I'm, I'm a monetary economist, and it's really hard to make sense of a commonly accepted medium of exchange if there's only one agent or, or one agent type in your model, right? Interaction is key, and interaction is all the more important when trying to launch an intrinsically worthless money. As I explain in a paper titled Getting Off the Ground, the Case of Bitcoin, individuals deliberately coordinated to make Bitcoin valuable and thereby enable others to use it as a medium of exchange. I've also been explicit about the planning and the revision of plans. In surveying the literature on Austrian labor theory, Pete Betke, Solomon Stein, and I describe the entrepreneurial process in these terms. And in another paper on Mises' evenly rotating economy, I suggest that the relevant choices in a macro model pertain to strategies or plans to achieve some outcome rather than choices over the outcomes themselves. Finally, we're perhaps most in agreement when it comes to our approach to evaluating policy. Uh, quote, to prohibit something that, may, that many people like to do will generally not be accepted passively by those who produce or consume the, pres the prescribed items, Wagner writes. Prohibition will increase the cost of doing business, leading to some decrease in supply and reduction in consumption, but it will also induce multiple changes in commercial organization and operation as people seek out alternative channels for fulfilling their desires without being detected and jailed. Along these lines, Josh Hendrickson and I have explained that banning cash would likely push those currently using cash in illicit markets to adopt alternatives with similar privacy protecting features like cryptocurrencies. So in some sense, it seems like I've fully embraced the Wagnerian view, but I wouldn't have said on the one hand if there were not another hand coming around. 
On the other hand, my work looks very different from Wagner's. I like deterministic models. And while I often disagree with other macro and monetary economists on important issues, I don't think the models employed in these fields need to be scrapped. I don't believe we need a radical rethink. Indeed, I believe much of Wagner's work is compatible, if somewhat out of sync, with mainstream macroeconomic theorizing. Naturally, while reading Wagner's book, I found myself trying to resolve this tension. And while I've not done so to my complete satisfaction, I think I've made some progress along those lines. Wagner rejects the synchronous universal approach to macroeconomics, of which he sees DSGE models as an exemplar, in favor of diachronic particular approaches. By universal, he means the presumption of deep level homogeneity among people. By synchronous, he means involving an equilibrium where the plans of all the relevant entities are presumed to be synchronized with one another. His preferred approach, open-ended evolutionary modeling, involves non-equilibrium theorizing about heterogeneous agents. A simple two-by-two two matrix of Wagner's two dichotomies make it clear, however, that synchronous universal and diachronic particular approaches are not the only options available. My preferred quadrant is the synchronous particular approach, which involves equilibrium theorizing about heterogeneous agents. Indeed, I would argue that a lot of modern DSGE models fall into this quadrant. A DSGE model, as you might know, is a dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model. It's in fact a large class of models. And it's a large class of models because it is defined so broadly. It must be dynamic, that is, have some notion of how the economy changes over time. It must be stochastic, meaning that there's some notion of randomness. It must be general or refer to the economy as a whole. And it must involve the sort of equilibrium theorizing that I've already discussed. DSGE models are not limited to Robinson Crusoe type representative agent models. As Lawrence Cristiano, Martin Eichenbaum, and uh, Matthias uh, Trabant explain in a, in a paper on DSGE models, they've progressed well beyond the simple real business cycle and new Keynesian models of the 1980s and 1990s. A lot of work in macroeconomics today makes use of heterogeneous agent DSGE models. I'm most familiar with the work in monetary economics, and in particular, the work that has followed Kiyotaki and Wright's seminal papers on a search theoretic approach to money, so uh, I'll focus on that mostly. Uh, those models began with three types of agents encountering a double coincidence of once problem as a result of randomly bumping into potential trading partners rather than meeting in a common Walrasian market. In the time since, they've been expanded to include an infinite number of agent types, endogenous matching, where agents choose their trading partners, and the coexistence of pairwise matching and common market exchange relationships. Ricardo Rice provides further examples of heterogeneous DSGE models in a 2018 survey titled, Is Something Really Wrong with Macroeconomics? As Wagner and I agree that models should generally include agents with different wants and abilities, I'll focus my remaining comments on our point of departure. In particular, Wagner prefers a non-equilibrium or diachronic approach, whereas I'm perfectly content with equilibrium theorizing. Wagner's primary complaint with equilibrium theorizing is its deterministic nature. They are 
quote, a robotic model of social systems, he writes. And he continues, it is not, however, a model that assimilates to recognition of the emergent creativity that can arise through social interaction or to recognition that different institutional frameworks can generate differing societal properties, end quote. It's true that DSG models are deterministic, but they are perhaps better described as conditionally deterministic. Recall that the S in DSGE stands for stochastic. As a result, they're deterministic conditional on the realization of probabilistic events and any exogenous shocks encountered along the way. When the agents in our model make their equilibrium plans, they do so with their best guesses regarding the likelihood of different states of the world. Over time, those uncertainties become certainties as outcomes are realized. And as this information becomes available, some agents will see their plans unraveled and they will have to revise those plans. Others will see their plans have paid off well, leaving them with a certain balance that they had only anticipated probabilistically before. These agents might then choose to let it ride or cash out or something in between. The ex-ante plans are synchronized given the available information, but that information is uncertain and the outcome is nonetheless emergent. Indeed, if we ran the model again, we might reach a very different result as the outcome depends in part on a dice roll. Does the fact that agents cannot possibly calculate the relevant probabilities ex ante due in large measure to the combinatorial arithmetic of situations requiring agents to make choices undermine the case for equilibrium theorizing? I don't think so. Just as Armin Alchian explained, we keep buffer stocks and leave resources unemployed to economize on information costs, so too might we adopt rough heuristics or flip a coin to get around the high costs of forecasting the relevant probabilities. Does equilibrium theorizing deny boredom, imagination, and creativity, as Wagner claims? Again, I don't think so. In a paper titled Endogenous Matching and Money with Random Consumption Preferences, Thomas Hogan and I incorporate the idea of individuals acting on a whim in a deterministic general equilibrium model. And others have made similar advances along these lines. To illustrate the ability of DSGE models broadly understood to capture the interesting characteristics of emergent phenomena, I wanna briefly recast Wagner's famous example of a crowd leaving a stadium. There are different types of agents. Some want to return home promptly to tuck their kids into bed or to get enough sleep before going to work the next morning. Some are impatient or hate feeling idle. For others, the night is just getting started. Some walk quickly, others slowly, and no doubt a few will be doing well just to manage a stagger at that point. At some point T, prior to the end of the game, each adopts a plan of action. They don't usually discuss their plans with others outside their group, if at all, but their plans are nonetheless synchronized in some sense as they're based on their estimates of the relevant probabilities. Many of these folks have been to a game before and realized that bathrooms tend to be crowded on the way out. Best to go early, they think. Others enjoy seeing the players exit the field or dislike close contact with strangers, so they plan to wait for a few minutes until the crowd thins out. Many understand the dynamics of crowds. They know that sometimes they bottleneck and sometimes they don't. They don't know who will come out of which stairwell at what time. That's inconsequential to their plans. They need only think about things like the likely flow of the crowd and how they might adjust their steps as others merge in and out around them. As the crowd starts filtering out, some of the unknowns become known. 
there was a chance that the hot dog vendor would leave his cart in the way, as happened once before. But that's not the case tonight, so those who were concerned maintain or perhaps even pick up speed, all according to plan. Others are surprised when someone cuts in front of them. Surprised, but not totally unexpected, as that sometimes happens. So they slow down according to plan. Some might get to a gate that an usher forgot to open. They will have to revise their plan and head to another gate. This negative productivity shock will set them back a bit. And some will see a neat vintage jersey that another fan is wearing and realize that they too would like to own a jersey like that. An exogenous preference shock, if you will. This equilibrium theorizing might not tell us who will get to the gate first on any given night, but it yields pretty good predictions about the flow of traffic. Such a model might inform the vendors to pull their carts to the side before the bottom of the ninth so as not to upset fans and as a consequence their employer by creating unnecessary congestion. Most importantly, it would make sense of the beautiful mosaic that forms as people exit a stadium, all of which is the result of individual plans and not the design of an outside organizer, but is nonetheless orderly in its own way. Our equilibrium model, in other words, does much the same thing as Wagner's OEE. It just describes the situation using different language. In wrapping up, I want to acknowledge that I probably hold an idiosyncratic view of mainstream macroeconomics. No doubt many of the criticisms that Wagner makes apply reasonably well to many practicing mainstream macroeconomists. My claim is a modest one. Wagner's criticisms do not apply to all practicing mainstream macroeconomists. And I would go further to add that they do not apply to the best practicing mainstream macroeconomists. By pointing this out, I don't intend to reduce the importance of Wagner's work. To the contrary, I hope his book will be widely read. I merely want to suggest to those already sympathetic to Wagner's views, those who, who recognize the distinction between action and interaction and the importance of that distinction in spontaneous order theorizing, those who appreciate the entrepreneurial planning process and the creativity of human agents, those who are skeptical of top-down solutions premised on the idea that some undefined we can act on society. It is to suggest to those sympathetic scholars and students that the solution is not to tear down all that has been built in macroeconomics, but instead to build bridges connecting Wagner's interesting ideas to their counterparts in the profession. Okay, thank you very much uh, to each one of you. Those were uh, very uh, intriguing comments. I'm gonna give uh, Dick a chance first to respond, and then I might ask some questions myself, but. Uh, Dick, you have the floor first. Okay, well, <clears throat> thank you, Pete, and thank uh, each of the three of you for uh, your thoughts and suggestions. Uh, I found all of them interesting, giving me in different ways things to think about, but also things to carry forward. I'm going to say just a couple of things about each of the three of you in order, starting then with Abby, I think um, I think one of the points you made about the need for economics to uh, treat jointly cooperation and conflict as part of the same social process. This uh, comes back to I think there's a fundamental question as to whether we treat 
economics as fundamentally a theory of society or as a theory of rational action. And I think uh, most of economic theory uh, has treated economics as a theory of rational action uh, and thereby naturally leads to perhaps a focus on cooperation, exchange, and so forth. And my view of the world, uh, uh, you can't have cooperation without conflict. Uh, if, uh, if cooperation takes place, uh, property rights are a vehicle of cooperation. Property rights are never just data. At any instant, they are data, but they're data in the sense of a property right is a line in the sand or analogized to a line in the sand. You have to ask why is the line there and not somewhere else? And I think the answer would be it's not somewhere else because someone who might have wanted it to be somewhere else doesn't have the ability to get it there. And so I think it means that living in a society is going to always be a kind of a perilous adventure just because you have something you, you like now doesn't mean you're going to have it continually. Property rights refer to a process of forbearance and the others are not going to get in your way. Then you have to ask where forbearance comes from. Uh, in his book, The Philosophy of Money, George Zimmel Ask, uh, you know, he, George Zimmel opened that book, Philosophy Money, by saying that not a single word of this book is about economics. Now, you might say it's hard to see that, but it's true in the sense that what Zimmel was concerned with in that book was the continual changing uh, boundaries uh, or parameters of forbearance about what people could reasonably buy and sell for money versus what they couldn't. And I think uh, a economics as a approach as a social science would uh, be attracted to seeing what we could say about those things, which I think would place economics as kind of the fundamental discipline of the entire gamut of the humane studies. Uh, and I think cooperation and conflict and these questions then about uh, how and in what ways different kinds of social configurations and arrangements might influence the degree of conflict versus cooperation that sort of play in societies. That uh, if I can go to Irwin's, one of Irwin's points uh, at, at this point, uh, occurs to me, is that uh, the 20th century was a period of some of the most horrible ugliness uh, uh, in, in recorded history. Probably a hundred plus million people butchered in, in various ways. Now, none of those characters who are attributed as being the leader in the role to bring that about ever said they wanted to do bad for society. They all said they wanted to do good uh, for their people. Now, that you know, raises the uh, kind of question that gets something saying that I think we cannot, and he, I was talk, talking about the place of macro in the 30s, that I think we cannot really, or shouldn't really forget to what extent 
the 1920s and 30s really disrupted Western traditions and practices really thoroughly. That uh, blame it on Karl Marx and what came after that. But uh, you know, starting certainly with the Russian Revolution, you found throughout the West a feeling grew very rapidly that the West had no choice but to get rid of its liberalism. But it wanted, a, the problem was to get rid of liberalism, but not going the way of the Soviets. And so it was widely felt throughout the intelligentsia that the way you had to do that was become kind of Fabians in one fashion or another. And so that was why, for instance, I think part of the reason why Warren Nutter was so savaged and pilloried when he came out with his growth of the industrial production in the Soviet Union in 1962, I believe it was, which said that Soviet Union is never going to overtake it. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, Russians were doing better under the czars than they did during the Soviet period. And, uh, but still, uh, that was bitterly objected to uh, at that period of time, which I think is a testimony to how thoroughly uh, ideas in the West uh, uh, lost its sense of the value of Western standard liberal traditions without, a, without trying to go this mixed economy kind of route of a little bit of collectivism, a little bit of liberalism, and trying to find a path where we can maintain some democratic liberties, but yet the collectivism would allow us to keep up with the Soviets was a uh, kind of thing. And I think economics in, in that fashion uh, became increasingly lost. Its, I mean, economists stopped talking about spontaneous order really in the very early 20th century. And um, it became, and I think, a discipline uh, much more concerned with operations research kinds of questions. Macro theory, I think, uh, took that. It's interesting, actually, in Keynes, though, in that, uh, in his closing chapter, I think, now, of, uh, of uh, the, the social philosophy lessons of the general theory, there is a place in that last chapter where Keynes says, I have no quarrel with the market direction of production. My only quarrel is with, with the total volume of production. Now, that is nothing like what we get now with quantitative easing and all this stuff, where all this stuff is, is intimately concerned with the direction of production. But still, I, I think there is uh, this kind of... Uh, uh, turning point, and um, you know, I think our, uh, I think there's a story there about how at any one time we're brought into a world, uh, and we take our bearings from what we experience and theorize about, and there's always whatever data we have in that respect has a story before that that has led to where we are. And I think uh, much of economics has uh, this day, I think macro theory included, I think shows that kind of sense. There's a sense now 
that people fundamentally can't take care of themselves. They have limited ability to take care of themselves. The late 19th century would have been uh, pretty much that people do that. The markets allow people to flourish. That doesn't exist today. There's a sense within all of, I think, our very, not just our political offices, but economic ideas that uh, without an economist, the right hand of a politician, life is going to go down into the toilet very deeply, very quickly. And um, I think that's a byproduct, an after effect of the uh, uh, Soviet uh, coming to power and how that has fed itself into the kinds of uh, schemes we think about. On, 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 on will, uh, I think uh, Deterministic models, I think there has to be a sense in which all individual action has to be deterministic in the sense that any undertaking of a plan means that you have formed an image of what you're trying to accomplish, what you have to do to accomplish it. And that makes it deterministic in your mind. Now, I think the perhaps the difference between us then is, he may be right, it may be kind of a difference in the emphasis, is that how do you go from the one to the many? Is it a simple, unproblematic thing? Uh, I was thinking while Will was talking of an image. See, in the uh, stochastic general equilibrium models with rational expectations, you, you don't have, you have errors being made in the models, but those errors cancel out and so have a mean value of zero. Now, what do you conclude from a mean value of zero? And this gets back to Abby then, and Abby pointed out, and of course it's, it's, it's a point of mine, that there isn't any action that takes place on the macro level. The macro level with respect to action is inert. All action takes place at the micro level. Um, so then I was thinking in terms of this, uh, errors cancel, mean value zero. And thinking, well suppose you took a thousand marksmen firing a 30 caliber rifle without a sight at a target 500 meters away. And you were told that the marksmen on average would hit their targets. Now all those marksmen are firing at a target of 500 meters away that is one meter square. Would you be willing and feel comfortable to go down and stand beside the target while they all fired away, securing the knowledge that on average they're going to hit the bullseye? I suspect not. But what that speaks to is Abby's point that it's not the macro effect that matters, but the ground level kind of action because when you get down to it, those actions aren't just firing bullets at a target, but are wrapped up in forming plans, executing plans, 
hiring people. You see, whenever you see a plan, you're, you're going to see people quitting one job, moving somewhere else, packing up their family and going. And if it works out as they plan, wonderfully. If it doesn't, not so wonderfully. And yet I get the feeling that politicians and their advisors wrapped up in these macro models say those are all just error terms. They don't matter. And yet behind those error terms are such things as further uh, unsettled, dashed plans, hopes, dreams, and all these kinds of things that are hard enough in life anyway. And I, myself, I guess part of my priors in this respect is that politics as a process is not a very good process for helping people nourish their lives, uh, pursue their dreams and their hopes, their aspirations in different ways, but rather are much more involved in helping politicians do that as uh, than the people from whom they purportedly claim to help and advance as part of the uh, campaign process. And so, so I guess going back and closing then with Will in this respect, I, I, I don't think I, there's really any kind of disagreement with us at the level of technical theory, I suspect, so much as it's a disagreement with perhaps. I have a sense that politics is fundamentally, on many, many margins, a destructive kind of activity. I, in fact, I, uh, I speculated uh, the other night in class with what would happen. See, politicians are, we have this category of essential services and occupations and the rest and uh, who gets vaccines. And the essential politicians are in the forefront of essential services. And you ask a question, well, if it's an essential, it means there is no replacement for them. And then I, I asked the students in class, and they have an assignment due, um, to see if they can come up with some examples of trying to get at how much of the range of modern political activity does not have any good replacement substitute for. And uh, I suspect the answer is very close to zero. Uh, but anyway, I'll quit with that. And anyway, one last thing, and then that's, you know, I, I think my interest in the uh, macro question, because I assume like macro is equivalent to society or social. And I'm then, and it gets back to Irwin's uh, earlier civilization book of, and like he put Hayek and Mises, and feeling that we are still losing hold of a incredibly glorious notion of civilization with roots back to the Greeks. And that uh, you know, what can economic ideas, economic theories help to contribute to the hopefully bringing forward uh, this vision? And I think it's, it goes beyond technical economics. I think it goes back much more to matters of the moral imaginations that uh, uh, people hold onto. 
that uh, I'm ultimately looking for a, a, a way to do that. But I, somehow I had this commitment that I want to do it in a scientific language and not with a moralistic language. We're out of time, unfortunately. But I, I want to uh, thank everyone. This is a uh, fantastic conversation. Uh, Dick, congratulations again on this great book. Uh, I want to thank, you know, Abby and Erwin and Will for engaging comments and taking their time out to share them with us. And I want to thank Molly and Malia and Stephanie and Matthew for doing all of this and coordinate it in these unusual times. And I uh, wish all of you, you know, good health and, and we'll all get back together again soon. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.